Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by the Arizona Office of Tourism. This spring, follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League spring training. Amazing weather and landscapes, exciting outdoor adventure, incredible food. Arizona is the perfect home base for baseball fans. Plan your spring training getaway at visitarizona.com slash spring training. Yes, that's visitarizona.com slash spring training. And now here's our show. For the officials of the National Hockey League, Mr. Wally Harris, the linesmen are Claude Bechard and guard Brassiker. In goal for the New York Rangers, it'll be John Davidson, who was 13-5-1 in his last 19 regular season games. In the playoffs, a 1.99 goals against average against the Flames. And again tonight, it'll be Daniel Bouchard for Atlanta, 3.18 on the year, 14-6-4 lifetime against the Rangers until this playoff, 3.47 is his average as we get ready for game number four. Flames in the white, defending the goal to our right, and the Rangers, of course, in the traditional blue with the red and white, defending the goal to the left. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's do this, friends. How are you? This is Tim Hanlon. It's uh, Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast devoted to, of course, what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for coming back. Uh, Or if it's the first time, welcome to the proceedings. Uh, We thank you for, uh, for doing so. This week, we are, uh, to the delight of uh, hockey fans everywhere, back onto the rinks, shall we say. And uh, we go back to, uh, frankly, some teams that we've been uh, dying to kind of at least uh, scratch the surface uh, on or above or upon, shall we say. Uh, And uh, we have the exclusive and uh, unique excuse to do so with uh, on three of those teams, the Atlanta Flames, which uh, you heard a little bit there of in their uh, their uh, time in Atlanta, the team that obviously moved to uh, to to Calgary ultimately, and uh, then uh, after a number of years of bereftness, Atlanta then getting the Thrashers, uh, and then them leaving, of, of course. So we get into to that. Uh, we get into the Quebec Nordiques. Uh, remember them uh, in the NHL? Uh, them uh, being a converted uh, franchise from the old WHA, and uh, also the Winnipeg Jets. The uh, the previous version of the Winnipeg Jets, of course, the current version, uh, the sort of second incarnation of such. But uh, our excuse to get to all three of those teams for the first time on this little show uh, is our special guest this week, Dan Bouchard, uh, a, a very well-known and uh, well-regarded goalie uh, in the NHL during the 70s and 1980s. Uh, across all three of those teams, the Flames of Atlanta, the Nordiques of Quebec, and the uh, first incarnation of the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, that is the uh, basis and the focus of our conversation this week. And I, I'll be honest with you, uh, a lot of this uh, uh, conversation, or at least the beginnings of it, was uh, in my mind, as I as I try to do, is try to keep things light, you know, uh, jovial and, and frankly anecdotal. Because, look, a lot of these stories, a lot of these histories, a lot of their little uh, explorations, you know, are somewhat uh, comical, if you will, because, you know, these are leagues and teams and, and situations and people and that are just, you know, kind of. Hard to believe, and 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 usually through sort of the uh, 
you know, the lens of history and, and looking back and stuff, there's a lot of sort of not only wistfulness, but also a little bit of uh, humor and a little bit of uh, comedy and uh, incredulousness, frankly, about, you know, sort of the things that happened and the, the people behind them and the things that they were thinking at the time. Uh, and we get a little bit of that with Dan uh, in our conversation. But um, this is also, as you will see, as we get into it, uh, a, a story that's a much uh, deeper and a little bit, frankly, more serious uh, with some uh, repercussions that have uh, still, uh, frankly, uh, yet to play out. But, uh, you know, certainly affected uh, the career uh, of Dan uh, and, frankly, others in the National Hockey League. In particular, uh, we get into some of the uh, the reasons and, frankly, not very well-known reasons as to why the Flames actually wound up leaving uh, Atlanta uh, when they did in 1980 to go to uh, to Calgary, I think a lot of it, uh, a lot of people generally sort of uh, assume and were under the impression uh, that uh, the Flames ownership under uh, Tom Cousins, you know, was having a tough go of it. Obviously, the team was not making a lot of money, if any, uh, certainly wasn't uh, a solid presence in the Atlanta sports landscape. And again, some of that's a, a scene of the 70s and, and the 80s, early 80s and the NHL at the time, but also Atlanta as a hockey market. We get into some of that. Uh, but frankly, Tom Cousins wasn't uh, doing so well himself in the real estate business and that that kind of thing. And uh, I think a lot of people just generally assumed, or at least the narrative that uh, was conveniently sort of thrown out there was uh, that uh, Cousins' uh, uh, business interests not doing well, not adding to, frankly, the uh, the benefit of the Flames franchise. And it just sort of became a sort of a storm of uh, impossibility to keep the franchise in Atlanta, hence the move and continuation of the franchise elsewhere in the city of Calgary. Uh, but as we get into our conversation with Dan, uh, some other sort of uh, perspectives on that, uh, in which Dan was uh, in particular uh, uh, part of uh, the mix. Not obvious uh, at the time, but you hockey uh, uh, historians out there will know a guy of the name of Alan Eagleson and his controversial uh, status as uh, the first executive director of the NHL Players Association. And uh, most of you in the uh, hockey uh, history uh, firmament will know that uh, he certainly went to jail and was kicked out of the Hockey Hall of Fame for various reasons relating to the topic that we're going to get a little deeper into with Dan, which is around NHL pensions at the time. And uh, I, I encourage you to listen. If you don't know sort of the full background of the story, this is not just a story of Dan Bouchard and and his, frankly, uh, tremendous statistics and, and great play uh, as an NHL professional, uh, mostly on those three teams, a couple of other places, too. And again, our original excuse, but this is also a story intriguing in the sort of, uh, I guess you could sort of say the management or uh, the lack thereof around uh, NHL player pensions and uh, and that kind of stuff. And, and you'll see why uh, Dan was sort of part of that story that uh, it took a while, frankly, to kind of get out. Uh, but we're going to get into some of the depth of all of that. And uh, frankly, we'll probably give you a different sort of perspective as to maybe why uh, the Flames left uh, Atlanta, why uh, Dan uh, moved on as well to other franchises, and frankly, a bit of sort of uh, maybe where the NHL has come from uh, since those days. It's an intriguing conversation, one that was somewhat unexpected in terms of its uh, depth and um, soberness, I guess you could say. Uh, but it's all entertaining, and uh, we uh, encourage you to, to give a listen for the next in the next couple of moments with our conversation with the uh, the great and the uh, the amiable Dan Bouchard. Coming up in just a few moments, please stay tuned. You will enjoy it, I assure you. Uh, if you want to remember, of course, the Atlanta Flames, or heck, even some of the uh, uh, the earliest incarnations of the Winnipeg Jets and the Quebec Nordiques, well, we got two places for you to check out, and, and there are two of our great sponsors, of course. 
we've got some promo codes for you too. And, and it's a great way to celebrate uh, the memories of these teams. And uh, the first we uh, want to share with you is our friends at OldSchoolShirts.com out in Cincinnati. Uh, and that's, of course, OldSchoolShirts.com. And you want to use the promo code good seats for 10% all of your purchases uh, when you go there early and often. And there's a number of uh, really cool looking Atlanta Flames T-shirts, a couple of different sort of uh, uh, creative takes. I think you'll enjoy both of them or all three of them. And uh, there's a whole host of other stuff, too, all kinds of other sports and pop uh, history and pop culture and all kinds of great things and memories in uh, beautiful, well-crafted and comfortable t-shirt form uh there's there's new stuff just about every week and uh the flames uh, of atlanta are uh, indeed uh, just a, a mere scratching of surface of what's available for you totally in total at oldschoolshirts.com again oldschoolshirts.com use the promo code good seats for 10 percent off all of your purchases we love our friends at old school shirts and uh, we encourage you to try them out and wear them proudly why don't you and then once you're done there why don't you hop on over uh, to our friends at 503 Sports? And of course, 503-sports.com. That's the website. Don't forget the dash. Uh, and we've got a promo code there for you, too, for 10% off all of your purchases. That's the promo code SEATS. No need to use the word good in there. Just throw in the word SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, and you will get 10% off all of your purchases there. And not only will we find some uh, Atlanta Flames uh, and Quebec Nordiques uh, and I think original Winnipeg Jets uh, t-shirts, but at 503 Sports, that is 503-sports.com, promo code SEATS. You will also find uniquely handcrafted, custom-made jerseys that will uh, allow you to uh, uh, impress all of your friends. If you want to remember, for example, the Atlanta Flames in all of their glory, uh, yeah, they got a couple of caps and T-shirts and stuff, but there is a smart-looking, painstakingly created, recreated Atlanta Flames jersey uh, that will make you the uh, the envy of all of your friends, uh, either walking down Peachtree Road uh, or at the uh, Hartsfield International Airport or, frankly, wherever you're going, representing the great city of Atlanta. The Atlanta Flames jersey uh, uniquely and uh, exclusively at 503 Sports. Again, 503-sports.com. Be sure to use your promo code of SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases, including that jersey. If you buy that jersey, that's going to be a hefty savings for sure. And, um, of course, with uh, great appreciation, thank our friends at 503 Sports out there in beautiful Portland, Oregon, and uh, our pal Dustin Alameda and his friends out there that uh, put that great set again. 503-sports.com, promo code SEATS. All right, let's move on and into uh, a uh, revealing conversation uh, with goalie uh, extraordinaire from the Na uh, National Hockey League of your. His name is Dan Bouchard. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this conversation. And uh, here it comes. This little show that we've done for the last two and a half plus years has been sort of focused on teams and leagues and uh, no longer with us for whatever reasons. And, and, you know, uh, aside from your uh, your stellar hockey career, uh, it seems like you almost specialized in teams that uh, that went away after some point. And uh, I just I'm curious as to sort of some of those stories that uh, uh, that you might remember for better or for worse um, around those in, in particular, of course, you know, the Atlanta Flames and um, which uh, tends to be kind of a, a, a blind spot uh, for a lot of people uh, in the NHL. But if you, if you don't mind, before we get to that. I'm just really curious if you can help our audience get a sense of how you got into the hockey thing altogether. Like, uh, when did you know when you were growing up that you had the chops to go for it in the pros? 
Well, it it happened very fast. You know, my, my father played uh, pro hockey. He was a Montreal Canadian first round pick when they were able to take the first French Canadian. Uh, that happened uh, post World War after the World Second World War. Canadian would take. Uh, I'd always choice of the uh, free choice on the first French Canadian player in the province of Quebec. They could always have him for free. And that was something that was set up with the league. My dad ended up playing in uh, in 1947 in the uh, U.S. Hockey League uh, in Dallas against. Uh, they used to play against uh, the Detroit farm team and Chicago farm team. And anyway, he ended up uh, not followed finishing his career. He played for three years in, in pro hockey. Then he, he ended up going back to uh, Canada uh, to play in the uh, Senior Hockey League there uh, in Quebec, in Northern, Northern Quebec, Northern Ontario League. And he ended up uh, playing hockey and baseball and uh, kind of lived a stifle life. And I was born in 1950. And in 1961-62, I went to a peewee tournament in Quebec. And uh, had a lot of success, you know. And when I came back, he asked me, well, do you like it? Oh, I says, I think I'm going to become a hockey player. So he says, well, look, next year you're going to go back. Let's see how you do. So the next year I went back. And I ended up being the start of the day. won the game. I had like 60 shots and, uh, you know, only gave up a goal. And when I came back, you know, I told him, well, I was fabulous. And there was 11,000 people and it was great, you know. And I says, I, I know I'm going to be a hockey player. So he says, we'll make sure. So uh, then he made me write my dreams. Uh, that Sunday, we went to church. And after church, he gave me hockey cards. And he gave me three goalies. He gave me uh, Lenall, Jacques Pont, and uh, Perry Sachak. And he says, uh, these are the guys you got to copy. You got to mimic somebody. You got And you got to study these guys. And you got to follow how they how they live their, their lives and why they're successful and why they're there. And so I got all kinds of books, started to read about them. And then uh, that summer, he sat me down again and he asked me, he says, now you're 12 years old. You're going to have to start to play junior hockey when you're about 15, 16. You're going to have to leave home. You've got to be able to write everything down. So he made me write everything down. Then he says, Normally, as the way it is right now, he says that the new, you know, 12 team in the NHL, he says, uh, you know, you should be drafted in 1969. So he says, you're going to have to, that year as your draft year. And he says, you got to get ready to write down your goals, what you're going to be, your, your skills, what it's going to be. And so he made me write down everything and he called it my map for life, for my life. So. Uh, that's how I became a hockey player. I had uh, a very, very, he was like a little bit ahead of his time. You know, a lot of people get paid to do things like that. But I was a kid who listened to his dad and uh, it paid off. Well, what what a gift, right? I mean, and probably well, in, in retrospect, no, too, right? Indirectly, it was a gift and it was a... Indirectly, I saw a man, he would see me playing junior hockey. And then when I got, I started to play pro hockey, you know, he saw me play and uh, he was very, uh, you could see that uh, 
He was happy for me, but indirectly, he could see himself having done just as much as me. You know, he was just stifled because at one time he was given an ultimatum by my mom, you know, to uh, whether it was his, it's going to be the family or, you know, you can play pro sport. And he took the family. So that's that was a stifled man. He lived all his life. And, and then directly when I started to play in the NHL, well, I was able to let him in and let him be part of it. And that was the good side of it. Yeah. And, and that's, yeah, I'm sure he probably, you know, given the, your lineage and, and uh, your exposure to sports and, and he's probably a wistfulness, right, to obviously to see his son uh, succeed at the highest levels, uh, but yet also sort of, uh, I guess, you know, uh, recognize that, uh, you know, the proverbial, I could have been a contender himself, right? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, he told me when I left my 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 first year I left with Junior, I was 15 years old. I was moving to a place called Schoenigan, Quebec. He said to me, I'm going to tell you the 11th commandment. Don't BS yourself. And, you know, when you're 15, you wonder, well, what is he saying? And he was saying, there's only one person you cannot lie to is to you. He says, you got a dream. You got a map. He says, if what your map should tell you how you're going to make a decision. And I think that was the best advice I could ever have. For sure. Why goalie? And when did you decide like a goalie was the position? Well, I was uh, seven years old and I was playing for in, in the neighborhood in Montreal called La Salle. And I was playing for a small a parish, you know, we had the, a parochial school and they had parish and we had a league hockey uh, hockey team there. And Jacques Lemaire's father was my, my coach. Wow. I was seven years old. Jacques Lemaire was playing then for uh, Lachine Maroons, uh, yeah, Lachine's Maroons and the uh, Metro League in uh, Montreal. And his dad was my coach. And his brother was playing hockey with me also. And we played one game. We started when I was seven. And we were playing a game. And uh, one day, uh, we are playing a game. And all of a sudden, no goalie. Because it was too cold. And the goalie, I always re- remember his name. His name was Michel Theroux. Well, Michel Theroux didn't show up. And he says, we don't have a goalie. I said, oh, yes, we do. Like in the, like in the jiffy, I was dressed. And I played goal that game, and you know, thing went, everything went very well. And the next game, Michel Theroux found out that I was I played goal, so he showed up and said, "I want to be a defenseman." So I became a goalie, and uh, also I had a uncle that was a goalie, so uh, you know, I had a precedent to follow. So it was it was a lot of fun for me. So junior hockey was your path then, right? So how did the pros come about? It seemed like you were... Well, junior hockey was my path, but you see, I was living in Montreal, and there was the Forum, Montreal Forum, who owned the Metro League. They kind of had a monopoly on everything. They had a monopoly on all the midget hockey players. They had the monopoly on all the bantam hockey players. When you hit 14, if you were any good, they tried to sign you to C-Form. You're sort of like in a syndicate almost, right? Well, if you signed for in the C form in the Montreal, you no know, uh, Montreal uh, form, you know, system, 
you belong to them. Just like in, in Toronto, it was the same thing. You saw see home with Toronto Maple Leafs. Well, you belong to them if you were in the Toronto area. See, that's why those teams and those bays had big monopoly. And that's why the U.S. team was not always as strong as the Canadian team because they didn't have as much hockey players. And so they had to go in Canada and that scouts would be willing to sign guys to see for them. And that, that stopped in 1968. That's how it was controlled. It was monopoly. And when I was 15 years old, there's a guy called Cliff Fletcher came to my house with a guy, another guy to sign me. And his name was uh, Caron, Doc Caron. For, it was with Montreal Canadian. And he came to my house and he told my dad and he told me, he says, if you don't sign the C form, he says, uh, you can't play in Montreal Island. You're, we're going to blacklist you and all that. And my dad literally threw him out in the yard in the front lawn. And I was 14 when that happened. Well, so you clearly, though, at that point, knew that you had some talent where there people were fighting over you. So that's that well, a good sign for you, right? Well, well, that was a good sign. So there's a guy called Chuck Cato who worked with Boston. And he knew everything about me since I was 12 years old, about my TV tournament, about my band from here. When I was uh, 13, I was playing with the 14 and 15, and I was dominating. And there was another goalie playing in the same league as me, Phil Neer, who ended up in Niagara Falls, who was signed by the Montreal Canadiens. As he was the last guy in the Montreal Forum could sign as a French Canadian. Well, I was playing against him, and I was just playing just as, as good as he was. So he signed me to, he asked me to go to a training camp and walk with Boston Farm System, Quebec League. That was called the Quebec Junior A League. I went there my first year in Schoenigan. I did a year and a half there. And then I was traded to Sorel, which was indirectly uh, the St. Catherine's Chicago farm system. And then I ended up in the OHA. And then I ended up getting drafted. My last year in, out of London, uh, I would play with Siddler and a whole bunch of guys. Uh, I ended up getting drafted by Boston. I was a Boston fifth pick in the second round. They had five picks in the first two rounds. And uh, I signed with Boston. So so in the late 60s, early 70s, you're you're in the uh the if you will, the farm systems of the uh of a number of NHL franchises, obviously not getting your your look really until the Bruins give you kind of a look near the end of the 71 season, right? Or 70? When, well, when no, that? no, that's, that's not, that's not right. Because in 68, 60, uh, 67, 68, and I played in, in Sorrell and we played the, for the Canadian championship, the Memorial cup. And we played against a junior Canadian. And in that series, uh, they had to hire, uh, the, the Montreal Canadian it was one, one after two games in the forum. And that those in those days, the form, the junior Canadian used to pack more more people than some of the NHL team. So I ended up playing uh, there. It was one one, and then after game two, 
they went to get Montreal can, Junior Canadian were allowed to get a player from their league, a goalie from their league. They went to get Jim Rutherford. And we lost every other game in the playoff. And the, the three of five, we lost uh, three two. And Rutherford was the other goalie. So, and then after that, I jumped leagues. I went to the OHL because I need to be in the English uh, English league. And I ended up playing for um, London. And out of London, Boston Bruins just had the training camp in London. And the last game of the training camp every year, they used to play against the London Knights. And that night, we played the Boston Bruins. It was 1-1, and they scored with two seconds left in the game to make it 2-1. And they had something like 50 shots, and that's when Boston decided to draft me the next year. Got it. Sometime, every game counts. <laughs> yeah, right. No doubt. You you never know when your best performance is going to be in front of somebody who can make a difference, right? So that meant, what, another, I guess, two years or so of minor league AHL Yeah, hockey, with Boston. Right? I played AHL my first year. I played, played in Hershey with the Bears. And the second year, I played with the Braves. We had a team, an AHL team in Boston with the Braves. So you you're 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 thinking at at some point you're going to get that call up with the Bruins, right? And well, I'm practicing with the Bruins. I'm I'm in Boston, the same building, and when Cheevers and Johnsons are not practicing, I'm practicing with them. But something very interesting and very career turning happens in the interim, right? And that's this expansion, a year what four or so of this. Uh, NHL expansion, which began in earnest in '67, and two teams this com- the coming season of '70 uh, for ni- for a start in 1972-73 are Atlanta and the New York Islanders. But also at the same time, and this is this is the part of we'll get to your story of how you got to the Flames in a second. But this is also the same time, and we we've had a lot of conversations about this. The World Hockey the World Association, Hockey. yeah, exactly. Yes, so where were you in the midst of all of that? Because obviously you're part of the Bruins, sort of. System. I was. I got to think you got to look at the WHA too for your own benefit. No, I was drafted by the New England Whalers. The New England Whalers became the uh, Houston Astros eventually. Arrows, yes. Houston Arrows. It was was Kelly, a guy Kelly that was in charge of the Jack Kelly was in charge of the New England Whaler team, and he had drafted me and. I wanted to play the fact that, you know, I was in the Boston Bruins system and I had, I knew that what's his name? Cheevers was going to go to Cleveland. So I'm sitting at the, at the, you know, the NHL draft, you know, expansion draft. And I know that I can go either with new England or become one of the goalies for Boston Bruins. But the Bruins call me, you know, the morning of the, the expansion draft, and they say that they were not going to protect me. And he, they say, you're probably going to leave, you know, in the draft for sure. So I and Billy Smith and I were taking in the expansion draft. Jerry Desjardins, Phil Mir was taken, and then Billy Smith and myself ended up, I ended up in Atlanta, Billy Smith with the Islanders. All right. So, how did you feel about not being "quote unquote" protected? Uh, did it matter to you that, arguably, because this would be your quicker path to get to the NHL finally, or were you kind of a little bruised, I guess, because they didn't? Protect no, no, it, it was not. A, no, it's you, you know, it, 
you can't get stuck there. You know, you got a career, you got a map, you got to decide. So, you know, I sat there and I said, well, that's, that's great. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to see who's drafted me. And then I found out I was drafted by Atlanta. And uh, I said, hey, I'll sign for one year and we'll see how it goes. If they don't treat you well, all then all the teams in the world hockey were allowed to try to take you. You had no more rights after your first year if you didn't sign with the team in the world hockey. Why did you decide? Why did you decide to go the uh, uh, the expansion route to Atlanta versus going the New England route with the WHA? Well, in Atlanta, Atlanta, had, you know, they you know for an expansion team they didn't have a bad team. The question mark was always if the goaltending was going to do the job or not, you know, because, you know, there'd be some lopsided you know, games. So anyway, I got drafted, plus Fletcher through the guy, you know, my dad kicked out and uh, out in the yard when I was 15 years old. <laughs> well, he was my GM. <laughs> You're kidding. He was the general manager? That's Well, that's why I mentioned that. Talk about karma. The... I'm sorry. I'm only just picking, this, picking all this up now. What, what, a, what a circle of uh, karma that is. Well, and the circle of events keep going my, throughout my career. The circle of events there is just like bang, 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 because then I'm going to sign with Atlanta. Then Alan Eagleson becomes my agent. Alan Eagleson was also the president of the player association, but he was also an agent and all the guys that were the rep for the each NHL team, he represented that, that player kind of had a monopoly there. He kind of had a, a hold on, on that. So my, before I signed my first contract with the Atlanta Flames, I always remember going into the office in Atlanta here and you know, it looks like you as well, we're going to have a, a tough, you know, the beginning of the season's going to be tough. We're going to play our first 12 games on the road because we, they knew the building was not going to be ready. So we had to play our first 12 games on the road. Uh, this, is, this is something we hear a lot. This sounds very WHA-like, but we also found out a couple... We also found out this exactly. week, our episode this week is about the Kansas City Scouts who had to do the same thing with Kemper Arena. Exactly. Exactly. You're right on. You're, you got a great, great memory, great history. That. And so he turned around and I says, yeah. So he says, here, sign the contract. So I'm re- he gives me the contract, give me the pen. He says, what are you doing? I says, well, I'm reading the contract. He just signed there. And I says, no, 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 no. I says, my grandpa told me the big letter, give it, the small, take it away. And he looked at me and he says, just sign it. Eagleson says that's what we, I, I agree with, you agree with me. So I says, wait a minute, Cliff. And I'm reading it and I said, Cliff, there's a, there's a mistake in this contract. I said, I told the Eagle, I says, I'm calling Eagleson. I told Eagleson I was only signed for one year because I want to see how it goes this year, how you guys want to treat me. Because I knew that they had signed, they had already signed Philip Neer for three years. So I said, well, wait, wait, I'm signed for one year and that's it. And, you know, he looked at me and he says, wait, wait a minute, we'll get Eagleson on the phone and get Eagleson on the phone. And then the secretary, Ann White, that also followed the team's cavalry, Ann White was in the room there and Eagleson says, you blinkety blink frog, you know, like a frog, you know, it's a frog. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? It's a French Canadian. 
<laughs> it's like the N word in yeah, it's, you know, a, it's a derogatory, of course. And he says, "You just put your name. You just signed that contract, and screw, screw off." And I says, "Eagle, you misrepresented me. I'm going to sign this contract for one year. Don't you send me a bill? I'm going to sue you for malpractice." Then he says, "You blinkety blink fraud. That's going to be the only year you play in this league, and this I'll make sure to that and all that." So. And White is listening to everything and all that. So I says, point well taken there, Alan. I says, I won't forget that. So I signed for one year. And that year, we almost made the playoffs. You were drafted very high in that that, expan- uh, that expansion draft. But you were all- – so explain to me the other goalkeeper in all of this mix, right? Because you- Phil, Phil Mir, he was yeah. Montreal Canadian. He was with Montreal Canadian. He was supposed to be number one. Yeah, interesting to me that two two very you know solid goalkeeper prospects, right, and or play you know would be. Did you sense that that one was being favored over the other? Did you sense that one was going oh, to yeah, win yeah, the yeah, job? Yeah. Well, it was it was it, it was set up that Phil Mir was going to be number one and it was going to be back up. But I had another idea, you know, because you know my father told me, look, you just roll with the punches. You go out there, you out, you practice, you out practice, you're going. And he says, after a while, he says, you play with expansion teams, they think it's going to happen funny. They're going to have to play you, and you're going to play good games and good games and good games because you're always going to reap what you sow. And so I ended up not playing the first four games, and I played the fifth game. I lost 4-1 here in Atlanta. In Atlanta against Minnesota and then we I played two games later in in New York against the Rangers and we win uh we won two to one. They had fifty one shots, we had nine shots. And so things like that. That was the season. And by the end of the season uh I played uh, thirty four games and Phil's played uh I think he's played uh, two more games, uh, four more games. He played 38 games. And I'm shooting 500 in my, uh, I got the, in my, my 32 games, I got something like uh, 42 points. So I'm, I'm sorry. I was, I was kind of, if you put a batting, my batting average, my performance was 625. So it essentially became a platoon thing where you were both kind of equals. Well, that was what they say the hockey team was. The building blocks of the hockey team was the two goalies. So that's what happened here in Atlanta. The two goalies, well, night in, night out, the two goalies, Phil Mayer and I, well, we we kind of carried the team. Uh, you know, we finished with 70, 74 points, I think, that season then. Uh, nobody's no expansion team has ever done that. Yeah, typical though, typical of expansion teams, right? Where the goalies basically become the bedrocks, and and yeah, and you grow it from there. But but even just like Flurry, just like Flurry did in Vegas, they rode the wave. The first two months, they rode the wave, and look what they ended up. Well, so explain to me the flings because they were, you know, to your point, they they were uh, they. I think they kind of outperformed at least on the ice. Everyone's expectations of what an expansion team should be, right? On the ice and on the ice and in the stands, because when the flames were, were shipped to Calgary. Okay. And directly I'm responsible for that. But when, when they moved the team from Calgary, from Atlanta to Calgary, 
the Flames were paying the payroll for the Hawks, the basketball team, and the Flames team. Okay. Right, exp- explain that to me because there was joint ownership there, and then we'll probably get into that. Story. Yeah, there was there was a joint a, a joint ownership, but Tom Cousin owned the team, and he had three other partners, and they also owned the Hawks, the basketball team, and he was using the pro teams to put Atlanta on the map as a city in the south. Right, and and to, for our audience, this is obviously before Ted Turner comes into the picture later in the in the in the decade for it to, uh, well, all that, that stuff. Right? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. But yeah, so this is this fits the theme of uh, cities looking for pro sports franchises to uh, get them into, if you will, major league status in Atlanta from the indoor perspective. Exactly, exactly. All that. Yeah, you're right on. So Atlanta, that's how Atlanta got. They had the football team, so they ended up. They had the Braves. Now they had hockey and they had basketball. So they were a major league city. And Tom Cousin, you know, I went to the All-Star game. I had a baseball agent. My agent, after my first agent, was a guy called Jerry Capstein. He was the first guy to get collusion for G- with Gene Tennis against Oakland A's and Charlie O'Finley. And Jerry Capstein, had, every year of the All-Star game, he had an average 24 to 30 players at the All-Star game in both leagues. He only had only about 30 players. They were all the All-Stars. And that year, I went to All-Star game. I was at Pittsburgh in 79. And the guys from uh, Raleigh Finger and another guy asked me to go, a guy called Rich Zisk, asked me to go to the to the. the Major League Baseball Players Association meetings, the players meeting, the Major League Baseball PA. I went to it, and they start to talk about the pension plan. And, you know, I I was, you know, I came out of that meeting, and then Gene Dennis asked me, he says, uh, Raleigh Singer says, Danny, you look very confused. I said, yeah, I'm confused. I said, I know you guys got a few more teams, but I said, what you guys, each team put for you guys in your pension plans, the same as we do. And I said, we, the players, do a 50% match or 100% match. But I said, at age 45, I said, the Rocket, the Rocket Richard, Maurice Richard, Henry Richard, John Beliveau, Boom Boom Jeffrey on that 45, they only get nine thousand dollars a year pension, and you guys get forty-two to forty-five. I said, something wrong with the numbers. Why were Why were they interested in your pension thing? Was how did they know all of that? And you got you guys. Well, didn't. they did not know. I'm the one that knew what I was paying, and I I understand the numbers. And if I do the quick math, I knew that. Well, look, they only had two more teams than we did more than with, but we were matching what they were matching. So. He said, well, talk to so-and-so. He's going, I says, I want the, algorith- the uh, algorithm of everything. And I said, the math, you know, that the actuaries use for figure out the pension. So the guy comes over to me and explains it to me. And I says, oh, uh, no, just show me the algorithm. So I understand that. I said, that's not Chinese. It's numbers. I understand numbers. I says, so why? Well, he says, the owners are keeping the money. So I... I went back home after the, the All-Star game, and I started to write stuff down. I started to plan some stuff. Yeah. 
I met a guy that was an actuary, and I asked him, look, I got this, and I said, this, look, I says, from what I'm getting, I says, uh, it looks like the the league's stolen $77 million from the, the Player Association since 1962. So he says, he looks at me, and he says, with this algorithm in the books, he says, you're right. So I called Tom Cousin. I said, Mr. Cousin, I got to meet you. I said, I got to ask you something. I said, there's something wrong somewhere with the pension player. The, you know, I said, there's, some, there's money missing. So I met him at a golf course called uh, Peachtree, a very exclusive place here in Atlanta. So he says, Bouchard, I'll meet you and I'll bring Jack Carter. He's a guy that started Equifax. I says, okay. So I sat down, I gave him the, so he had Jack Carter ask me, what do you understand about the numbers? I said, well, this algorithm, I said, these are the numbers, that's how much money we pay. I could show you my, my check, how much money came out for my pension the last year, this and that. So he says, well, he says, if these numbers are right, he says, let me do something. But he says, in Canada, they got, uh, they got socialized medicine, he says, it's going to vary. There may be more money than you think. So two weeks later, he meets with me. And he says to me, you know, Mr. Cousin calls me and he says, we got to meet. I got good news and bad news. Peachtree, 1230. So I met him at Peachtree, 1230 with Jack Carter and another guy called Tim Eccleston. So Tim Eccleston's not aware of what I'm doing. And he's going to be the assistant coach in next year. He used to be the player rep for Eagleson. So we sit there, and uh, Jack Carter says, "Well, then you made a mistake." He says, "You." So Mr. Cousin sits sits me down, and he says, "Dan, look, I know the good news is you're right. The bad news is that the owners are stealing from the players." And he says, "The players are the engine of the team." And he says, look, I gave you a Bible the first year you were here in Atlanta. And he says, I'm not going to steal from the players, from nobody. So he says, I'm going to have to bring that to the meeting. And, I, and Tim Nicholson is looking at me. He says, what are you talking about? I says, you know, all the guys in Canada, their pension getting about five, $7,000 a year for rocket Richard and all that. I says, well, they should be getting about no, $40,000 a year. I says, don't, they're embezzling the money. So Jack Carter says, it's not 77 million the problem, it's 88 million. You know, in 1979, you know what interest rate was? 18 and a half. It's a lot of money. So he says to me, he says, are you going to run with that? I says, no, I got a contract. I'm going to honor my contract. I'm not going to bring that in nobody's life. So Tim Eccleston's looking at me and he says, Dan, you do this, you're going to, you know, he says, you're going to get, you know, black ball, you're going to blacklist it. He says, people in the league, nobody's going to want you to play for that. I says, there's another league, Tim. The World Hockey was still active. As a matter of fact, in 79, the World Hockey came on. So I didn't say anything. And... I kept all the numbers with me. So Tom Cousin went to the breakers meeting that year in December, and he told the owners that that, that money's going to have to be returned to the players. Fun. Cousin's the owner of the Flames is kind of, I want to say doing your bidding, but he he's kind of standing up amongst the other owners 
as the oh, first he, one to he's voice the head honcho. He's okay. the head honcho. He's the head guy. He, so he's, it's, he's, it's, doing the, he's doing the right thing, so to speak. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And all the other owners knew they didn't want to be part of that. So when he approached the owners in in, New York, in, uh, in Florida and all, he told the guy in New York and Wirtz in Chicago and the Adams in Detroit, and he told everybody that they were stealing from the – he says, you can't do that. You know where the team was the next year. It wasn't Calgary. Because they, what, essentially squeezed out Cousins because of his vocalizations of all this? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, they, didn't want, they did not want that to come out. All right, what's this? The Arizona Office of Tourism Spring Training. Oh, my God. Hey, this spring, follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League Spring Training. Amazing weather and landscapes, exciting outdoor adventure, incredible food, Arizona. It's the perfect home base for baseball fans. Follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League spring training. 10 stadiums, 15 Major League Baseball teams, and 75 degree temperatures. Ah, awesome. And all 10 stadiums are in the greater Phoenix area, all within 50 miles of the city. Meet players, get autographs before the games, and just enjoy an old-fashioned ballpark experience in beautiful preseason weather down in Arizona. Check out amazing restaurants and bars nearby, including tons of craft breweries like Four Peaks, Angel's Trumpet Ale House, and Goldwater Brewing Company. Enjoy live music from local and national artists and explore museums featuring everything from native heritage to modern art to musical instruments from around the world and more. Arizona is known for its incredible landscapes too, as well as thrilling outdoor adventures. So hit the road and explore Arizona's urban centers or ghost towns or artsy communities or quirky outposts. You can hike, you can bike, you can take Jeep tours, hot air balloon rides, skydiving, jet skiing, or just taking in a good old-fashioned sunset. No matter what you love to do, Arizona has you covered. Check out must-see destinations from your bucket list like the Grand Canyon, Monument Valley, Horseshoe Bend, and even the great Old West City of Tucson. Bringing the kids along for spring training? Hey, Arizona's a fantastic destination for families, too. Family-friendly resorts and hotels offer plenty of fun for kids of all ages, from water parks to horseback rides to games and activities. Arizona also has tons of stuff for kids to do and see, like wildlife parks and science museums, aquariums, and even dude ranches. So what are you waiting for? Plan now for your spring training getaway at visitarizona.com slash spring training. That's visitarizona.com slash spring training. Hey, and don't forget, send us a postcard. But the team had also had some struggles, right, uh, financially as well. I guess that's... No, 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 no. There was no struggle. That was that was a fallacy of the things because we were out drawing, we were out drawing, uh, how you call it, uh, Quebec, Quebec. I don't know. They were in the World Hockey. They came to the league. They had a small small crowds. We were out drawing Washington. We were out drawing uh, Denver. We were out drawing Vancouver. We were out drawing L.A. I mean, we didn't have no problem with the crowds. We were averaging about. 13.5 out of 14.99. Nine. 
in a relatively new building with the Omni, right? Actually, brand new building. With the Omni, yeah. The Omni was a very nice building compared to a lot of the rinks around the lake. But the whole idea, they were out drawing everybody. But the issue that they said, well, we'll put the team in Calgary. Because I remember leaving Atlanta, going to Calgary, and playing that barn, uh, the corral. I mean, you know, that was kind of a joke. That was a step down. We were in the Canadian city, but there was only 6,400 people at the game. So, okay, but but, but the, there were, clearly there was, you know, there were efforts to, to, to buy tickets and distribute them to the, uh, there had, it, it didn't seem like it was, uh, maybe at the gate, yeah, but it seems like th- that it was, you know, there were some hints of financial instability during those years, or were you... Just unaware no, of no, it. the economy was bad because of the eighteen the eighteen it was eighteen percent no the inflation there was uh, you know the mortgage rates were eighteen percent and all uh, that that was the problem and you know what Hudson got twenty million dollars for his team net and he and the four million that he still owed on the six million dollar franchise he never had to pay it. So it became a convenient way for to to rid the league the the, the league to rid uh, them of the sort of uh, I don't know the rebel yeah. rouser right and uh, and also absolve uh, of the well all right before we get it to Calgary and that stuff so that's a very interesting for, for, I guess did you ever determine like why and how this uh, uh, pension money situation started in the first place I mean was there any did it ever get rectified and or corrected. Well, nobody ever talked about it. I, you know, I, like, cousin says, you woke up the dead. You know, you're you're bringing something, and he says, if you start to talk about it now, you're going to end up in trouble. Your career could be jeopardized and all that. So, you know, I signed for, I signed a one-year contract my first year in Atlanta, then, there was the president of the team was Bill Putnam. Then he gave me a eight year contract. The second year I was in, in Calgary, I got an eight year contract and nobody had ever heard of eight year contract, but Capstein had gotten me an eight year contract and the contract was ratcheting it from so much money to where I made the eight year, I make $140,000, but he also was able to get me $250,000 of, cash up front that was non-taxable so I could get me a house, I can get me some investment. So it was a little bit ahead of a lot of, a lot of people's time, you see. So I had a eight, I'm sitting on an eight-year contract. I'm not going to, I'm not going to jeopardize my contract. Yeah, you had some leverage. So, so, okay. So um, tell me about the, the fans and the reception uh, during those years, because uh, you know that oh, the hockey was a white hockey. Look, I'm not, I'm not a racist, but hockey was a white sport. Yeah, well, still kind of is, sadly. Yeah, yeah, but I know. But in Atlanta, the the Flames were hit. The Flames outdrew the the Hawks, and the Hawks were living off the Flames the crowds. And anyway, it was it we were. It was so good. I can't. I never left. I never left. Well, you guys were also. Uh, you guys were uh, among the expansion teams that kept rolling out in the seventies in the NHL. You guys stood out 
uh, almost from the beginning as being uh, not only decent but actually competitive. Yeah, we uh, always made the playoffs. Right, but 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 the, the the knock against you guys always was right that that the playoffs was always kind of your the playoff. You know what? When one year we went to L.A. We playing L.A. a best of three, and uh, L.A. scored. Uh, goals and uh, I didn't even have a <laughs> we scored two goals uh, we scored a goal and a half and we had we had less than half a goal a game in the two games we lost the first we lost the first game in LA one nothing and we came back and it's nothing nothing after three periods and we lost in overtime one nothing we scored zero goals how you how you win the playoff? He scores you a goal, you know. Yeah, so, you're, you're defending from all those goals. You can't go up and suit up and, and score them yourself too. I mean, well, 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 and you know that was always the knock, you know, on on the, you know, oh, you can't play in the playoff. They can't play in the playoffs. And when I when I left the flame system and I went to Quebec and got in the playoff, well, that was a different story because we had guys that could score goals, you know. And the goalie looks better in the playoffs. All right. Well, so tell me, tell me the 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 the, the move to Calgary because it was obviously short lived. But and I, I'm, you know, Nelson Scalbania. That's an interesting story. But you you knew you already hinted at it, right? That you know what you had. Well, in, I, I knew. Well, we're in Atlanta on the seventh of uh, on the third of July or second of July. They announced the Flames moving to Calgary, something like that, and. On the 10th of July, you know, Scalbania and all these people, he had all the people, all the real estate people come and look at everybody's house and trying to buy everybody's house here so they can move them in other you know, comparable houses in Calgary. So me and Willie Platt, we go to, we go to Calgary. And the day before I left Calgary, somebody knocked on my door and the lady said, I'm with A. LePage, and we would like to know if we can look at your house, see what you got. And I told him, look, I, I'm not going to sell a house whether I play in Calgary or not. This house stays here, so don't even look at it. And the guy and the lady looked at me and he said, oh, well, we just, I says, I don't care. It's none of your business what I have here. So they left and Willie Plett calls me and said, Boosh, did you get a call? Did they stop by? You know, that's none of their business. I says, well, that's how they're doing things, I guess. So... I pick up the phone and I call a guy in Vancouver called, uh, he was in charge of IntraWest, a big, big, you know, Whistler, uh, skills and all that. He's a good friend of mine. And I asked him, I says, uh, Mr. Ferris, he was, he lived with us when I live in Ottawa when I was five and six years old. Well, this guy lived was a uh, border with my family and he ended up being a big, big businessman in Vancouver. So I call him this. Who's Nelson Scalvania? I'm going to Calgary. He says, look, I'll tell you, I'll give you the book on him. And he gave me all the information. So I remember me and Willie going to Calgary and we went to the corral and we went to the corral, the rodeo just finished. And we walk in there and wow, there was cow manure everywhere and there was a mess. So <laughs> anyway, and then we saw the small building from the Omni to the small building. So anyway, so and then they start to show us houses, and the houses were 
the house I live, you know, I'm still living in the same house. The house I have, I had in Atlanta would have cost me $600,000 in Calgary. And you know, interest rates over there were 18, 18% too. And $650,000 for a house that in Atlanta cost me 125. So I went to Calgary and I told Willie, I'm just going to rent. Willie said, I'm going to rent too, first year. So I went to Calgary, I rented a house and you know, halfway around January, uh, I went to see Cliff and I said, why don't you trade me? Oh, nobody wants you. So I challenged Cliff Fletcher. I says, look, if you say nobody wants me, uh, I bet you I can trade myself in two phone calls. I'll call two teams. And he said to me, he says, oh, you think you're good. No, you think you're good. And I knew it'd be easy because David Poyle wasn't there. David Poyle had gone to scouts in Finland. So he says, you think you're good? Then he says, okay, I'll give you two calls. So he tells the secretary, look, Dan's going to have two calls. He can only call two teams. He says he can trade him. Let's see how good he is. And the first team I called, I traded myself. It was Quebec. And and for our audience, this is important to know because this is the it's about a year or two after the WHA had finally, uh, well, a, a handful of franchises had gone into the NHL, right? So that leverage had sort of gone, but arguably you had what four new teams in the NHL, and not all of them were up to the NHL's standard, so to speak. So yeah, that's right. Leverage, so right, but but Quebec out of twenty one teams, they were number twenty one, and you know I look at the league stat that Monday morning when the I went to see Cliff to ask him that, and I saw the league stat. And, you know, I went to see Ann White, and I says, uh, Ann White has known me for eight years, and uh, she knew my wife, she knew my family. So she says, uh, Why are you calling the 21st? She says, The Rangers will take you overnight. I says, Let's call, let's call there. I says, Next year is free agency. I says, I want to exploit it, I want some leverage. So she says, they're 21st. I says, yeah, but they went six, seven games out of the last 25 games real quick. I says, they're right back in the picture. I says, all they need is a goalie. So she says, okay, we call Quebec. And the guy in Quebec tells me, uh, he thought it was a joke. He called me back. Maurice feeling says, oh, I I can't take a chance. I thought that was a joke. What are you doing trading yourself? I says, well, I says, I challenged my general manager. I told him I can trade myself in one day. He says, well, what do you think? Well, I says, look, you're going to have to give a good player. You're going to have to give a good player if you want a goalie. And at that time, I had gotten the player of the week to the last four weeks. So I was on the upswing. I was playing, starting to play real good. So he says, well, Dan, he says, I, I, Jamie Eslop, you know, he's a fan favorite. Well, I says, you know what? You're not going to get chicken shit if you don't give, uh, you got to give the chicken sometime. So he, look, he says, well, I says, okay. I says, you guys are playing tonight. I says, we're playing in Edmonton. So I says, it's eight o'clock here. I says, you guys uh, are in uh, at 10 o'clock. You're going on the ice to do your, your skate. So I said, uh, do your skate and we can talk after. So right after I got out of the office and White says, 
I said, I'll be back in about an hour. So I go into the gym and I sat and I sat on the bike in the gym and Pierre Paget was there and he's just to me, he says, uh, oh, you're doing good, Danny. I says, Jeff, we went tonight in Edmonton and all that. So I says, oh, yeah, well, things are going good. Things are going good. So also now McNeil comes in and Al McNeil comes over to me and looks at me and he says, who are you? I says, I'm the goalie, Dan Bouchard. Huh, you're the goalie, huh? He says, well, you're not playing tonight. <laughs> that was my, that's why he was the reason why I wanted to get out of there. This guy was not there. So he says, you're not playing tonight. So I says, oh, no, it's Edmonton. He says, you're not playing. We'll play Riggsy. So Pat Riggin ended up going to play the game with, um, with the other guys. So anyway. That morning, I stayed at the rink. You know, I did the practice. Then we used to get on the bus and then go to Edmonton, have a training meal, play the game at 8 o'clock. So uh, I get into uh, – practice is finished. All the guys are gone. I'm still on the ice, and all the guys call and come into the ice. Boosh, boosh, the bus leaves in 15 minutes. You're still on the ice. I said, oh, no, no, I'm not playing tonight. He says, you told me I'm not, I'm not traffic. The guy says, what's going on? I says, I don't know. But I says, sometime I'll be the winner for it, you know, because all of a sudden, there we are. So, Maurice Fillion, I told him, I call him back at 10, 1030. I says, go ahead, offer Jamie Eslop. He worked with Al McNeil and Pierre Paget in the hockey school. And I says, they know him. He says, he's very, very, very hard worker, great work ethics. I says, that's what they need here. So, that night, 10 o'clock, Fillion calls me and he says, Danny, you're you're a Nordique. I says, Maurice, you made the playoffs. <laughs> and the rest is history, <laughs> you know. Uh, and then, you know, last year, th- this is how crazy times are. Last year, uh, Glenn Sater came out with a book and he had in the book that he tried to get me that year. And Calgary would not trade me to Edmonton. This is Tim Rangers. Uh, Glenn Sater was a GM, was a coach, uh, and uh, you know Buckler was a GM in Edmonton. Oh, in Edmonton, sorry. And uh, Glenn Sater says, "I was trying to get you uh, to come and play for us." He says, uh, "We would have, we would have really, really taken off with you the same way you taken off with the Nordiques." He says. He says, uh, Fletcher didn't know. He says, uh, he's not for trade. He's not for trade. And, you know, you had been telling me that nobody wanted me. But anyway, that was beside the point. So that year, we finished the season. I got in Quebec. There were 28 games, and uh, I played 26, and I was 24-1-1. We made the playoff, and we got eliminated by Philadelphia in best of five and five games in overtime. It almost feels like you kind of almost had the same sense of of almost like joining the expansion team in Atlanta, well, right? Where you knew for me. that goalkeepers were going to matter, right? In terms of building up uh, how to get them the next. You know what? That year, I when I joined Quebec, you know that year they had three guys that scored fifty goals, four guys that scored fifty goals. They had one of the Stasny, they had Jacques Richard, Buddy Cloutier, and Michel Goulet. Sure. Imagine that they had 450 goal score, and when we were here in Atlanta, you know, we had uh, we had three guys that had 50 goals. You know, Guy Schwinnard had 50 goals. Uh, 
Bobby McMillan and uh, Eric Vela at 50 goals here in Atlanta. Well, plus you're also playing in Quebec, which is frankly just, you know, a, 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 a stone's throw pretty much from where you spent your, your early years, right? So it kind of well, probably well, almost felt it, like coming home. There was, there was financially is, is dreadful. Certainly. Financially, it was dreadful because, you know, that 62% tax, you know, I had to, when I re-signed with them, I had to uh, spend a lot of my times go to, I had to have 180 days in the United States to be able just to, to file tax here in the United States to take advantage of my Canadian outpay. So it was, you know, I was kind of playing Donald Trump at the taxes there, but uh, it was a way around it to where I could recoup uh, about 12, 15% of that money that I didn't leave on the table. So it, financially, it was not that great of a deal. But career-wise, it was excellent. So tell me about tell me about uh, Quebec, the Nordiques, obviously one of the smallest, if not the smallest market in the NHL at the time. Uh, the fans, obviously, it's a, it's a historically very deep and rich hockey culture, oh, yeah. right? So that's certainly no, no. You, you uh, going for you. You can compare Quebec and Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, so juxtapose that for me. Give me a well, sense of what Atl- like, the Atlanta cosmopolitan scene versus it was Quebec. Like, uh, you know, it was like somebody would go and play baseball in Milwaukee and then he goes to uh, play for the Yankees. And then you had the big rivalry with Montreal Canadiens. You know, every time Atlanta went to play in the Montreal Forum, it was a mecca. You know, all the players seemed to be intimidated. It was the Forum. When the Nordiques went to play in the Forum, the boys, all the boys felt at home. They all grew up around Montreal. So you see, they were not intimidated by the building. But the intensity of that rivalry is it was, oh, it was something else. Well, right? it was, you know, it was... But with, no, there was one brewery owned one team, one brewery owned the other team. You knew that. And the breweries were whining and dining all the newspaper guys when they were in their town. And when they were in the other town, they were whining and dining them in the other town the night before. And it was like, you know, when we played the, the series in 82, when we eliminated them, well, you know, they said that the water, the aqueduct in Montreal and in Quebec in between periods, they could see the water go down because everybody went to the bathroom at the same time <laughs> between first and second. Yeah, how much did the NHL kind of, I mean, it's obviously a different era, right, back then, but, but you know, the, the NHL today, I mean, if you imagine they've had that rivalry today, I mean, the NHL would make a marketing meal out of that, right? Because that, that intensity was... Well, they would, they would, because you look at a team like uh, Arizona, you know, look how they, they've been, look, they had nobody in the building for the longest time. Yeah, or Florida. And Florida. And look at the the Panthers, they got nobody there. And, you know, they could fill that, you know, look, with all the the TV and all the stuff going on and the gambling, the betting, you see what's happening in Quebec. It's that the, the Canadian teams don't want another team to go there to Quebec. That's the real crux. Now, That's why, the crux now why the is that? Because uh, I, mean, I, I was going to get because to the, all the betting money, you know, they got betting on the, on the, on the sports in Quebec, in Canada, legalized betting. And then 
there's all the TV rights and all that. And the company that wanted to buy, get the team Videotron, well, they own uh, the whole Eastern Canada. They're like Comcast Eastern Canada. And the Montreal Canadiens don't want to lose that market. You see, it's all dollars, all politics. Because the Nordiques, the, the Nordiques, the, that new building that went in it several times is gorgeous. And they could they could make a team live there just as good as look, Vancouver the last two, three years. And no, nobody in there. You were part of, you were on the ice during the, uh, the infamous uh, Good Friday massacre. Do you do you want to mm-hmm. do you want to talk about that? Because I, I'm not sure. Our, I, I want I want I use this for our listeners as, as evidence of just how intense this uh, <clears throat> this rivalry was in the 80s between the Nordiques and the Canadiens. But it, this was this was the, the 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 this is something that 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 is just infamous in league history as as one of the more bitter on ice spats that ever happened. And and you know what? It was it was not just. The fight itself, they had nothing to do with it. It's the way the league, you see the Montreal Forum and the NHL was in Montreal. And the way that the league stuck their nose in between the second and the third period and not the referee take the decision and the league took the decision and all that, that's what happened. They they screwed up the whole game because... It was a very, very innocent thing because the the guy that got knocked out, okay, Jamel, when he got knocked out by Slager, you know, these two guys played together in Quebec and they were roommates for three years. They were the best buddies. And what happened is Mario Tremblay tried to cheap shot Slager and Slager avoided the check, saw him coming. So Slager turned around and was going to punch Mario Tremblay, who was a real instigator. And as he threw the punch, Jean Mel put his head trying to get in between the two, and he got completely knocked out. That's how, first of all, that's how, how it started. Jean Mel's trying to be, you know, brawl breaker, gets knocked out, and then the bench cleared. And I remember, I didn't fight. Because, look, it's two to one for us. Why should I fight? This was during a, a, a this was during a, a, a playoff series. It was a game six. Obviously. Yeah, it was That's game five. It was game, game five. five of the, yeah, game five of the best of five. And and the second period was kind of winding down when sort of the first sort of altercation happened. But, but it's exactly like- there was only about a minute and thirty second left in the, in the period. And that's when it happened, and we were winning two to one. And Pyrotron was trying to scheme his team up, and uh, he missed his check. And Slager was going to punch him, and the other guy jumped in and gets knocked out. And then the bench cleared, and the guys was trying to get me to fight. And they got I had two guys who were sent from the bench to make sure I didn't fight. Don't fight. Don't fight. Stay there. But what happened is. Each team had five guys thrown out of the game. So you know, the guy, the vice president of the league came in our dressing room and, he, and the chief referee says, you, 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 you can't go back on the ice. Get undressed right now. We want to see you undressed right now. So, but they didn't do the same thing in Montreal Canadian. So the five guys supposed to be suspended from Montreal Canadian came back on the ice 
and started a fight with some of the other players on the ice, of which two more of the Nordics players got thrown out. You know, the, the league never talk about it. So are, are you hinting and, that maybe the league was kind of putting their thumb on the scale well, in favor of the Canadians? It was a form. It was a form. It was a form. It was a form. Because a year after, we we ended up going to... Uh, we ended up going to play the Canadian. We ended up playing the Canadian, and we beat them in overtime, game seven. And you know what? It was just like poetic just justice, really. It was so anyway. It was just like, but you know that was always you know Montreal to go and play Montreal Forum was the mecca. But you know Scotty Bowman, he had a, the guy that was the help for the equipment. You know, no help. Our 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 manager for our equipment. Well, he used to come in at night and measure all the sticks. Scotty Bowman had this guy could get in the dressing room and they go and measure all the sticks, and we figured him out. We had a guy that played for us at the Flames, Larry Romanchuk, and we used to tell him, "Put your two illegal sticks, and we'll leave the other ones in the bag." And he had made a little mark on them, and so. Doc, his name was Doc, and uh, so Larry Romanchuk went on the ice. There's a, it's two to one for us, and Larry Romanchuk goes on the ice, and they start to measure the stick, and you know, they can measure the stick how it was. He was a quarter of an inch under the being oversized. So, you know, Scotty Bowman saying that stick is illegal. That stick is illegal. So I walked to the bench and I says, "Hey, I says, <laughs> Scotty." We changed the stick. We know Doc measures the stick at night. I said, you got caught there, buddy. And Serge Savard was standing there, and he was laughing. He was saying, no, no, you, no way. I said, yeah. So they ended up with the penalty, and we scored in the empty net. And then, you know, that was that went around the league. And then the league defended the, visiting their own team to be able to access dressing room, you know, Unless there was a, uh, a, a personnel from that team on, in the room that you no know, Montreal had all kinds of stuff going, so you know they didn't win twenty five times by accident. So, but your last season though was eighty four, eighty five with Quebec, right? That was uh, that was a period of time. Those years that you were there, you, you were the Quebec was very much in the mix and, and arguably just short of, of sort of reaching sort of that next pinnacle of. Maybe well, the only thing Quebec did not have, because one year we lost to the Islanders in four games, but we lost all games uh, by a goal. And we had, they had some of the games they won by two goals, but they were empty netters. And the only things that we did not have that the Islanders have is the Dennis Potvin. Well, Dennis Potvin would be the difference maker for just about any team, wouldn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if we would have had a guy like Dennis Fazan on the Nordiques, well, we would have won the Stanley Cup like uh, Paul Coffey was in Edmonton. You see, that was that was the only thing. You see, the Nordiques never had a, a quarterback like a Larry Robinson or something like that. You see? Because Podvin, the Podvin at Siri had nine points out of 11 points in four, uh, four games. They had 11 goals. And he had nine points. And our best defense had one assist. What does that tell you? Uh, amazing. Well, all right, so explain to me then, 
your last season with Quebec and then and going to Winnipeg. You obviously played about half the okay. season. That year, that year I started the season. I no, I, the eighty five, eighty six season. I I go to training camp and I start to do training camp and things was going and then, uh, you know, the coach Bergeron calls me in and he says, well, uh, I would like you to. Uh, you know, the third goalie, I want you to bring the kids up and all that and so on and this and that. And here I am, you know, I'm just one of the best paid players on the team. And, you know, he wants me, that's the job he wants me to do. So I said, sure. So I started the season and we, we play one game. We win one game, we lose one game. After that, we lose three games in a row. Oh, he puts me in the goal for two games. We win two games and the team gets going again and he would put the two other kids which I didn't mind, you know. I knew that you come towards the end of your career, somebody's going to start trying to push you. If it's not another goalie, it's going to be the management. And that year at uh, around Canadian Thanksgiving, it was in October, around October 10th. Uh, it's usually the first Monday, the second Monday of uh, of November. Well, I got call. I got a call from the Nordiques, and they told me I was traded to Winnipeg. So I left Winnipeg that day to go to uh, uh, Quebec that day to go to Winnipeg. And when I got to Winnipeg, do you remember that show on uh, on the radio? It was called "And Now the Rest of the Story." Sure, yeah, Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey, you remember that? Well. That's the rest of the story. I ended up in Calgary, and guess who's picking me up? Not the trainer or one of the, you know, guy that helps around with the team. It's John Ferguson. <laughs> Fergie picks me up, and I'm at the airport, and I got I got my cart with all the stuff and all that, and I tell uh, I see Fergie, and I says. Fergie, picking up your wife or something, you know? I, I knew him from Montreal a little bit, so he says, what are you talking I'm picking you up. I said, the GM picks up the player. He says, just just roll this outside. He said, we'll put that over there. Like the two cops are watching my car. We'll put that. He had the big Cadillac, so we put the stuff in there. And it was, it was October, and it was like minus four below. So I said, oh, wow, reality sets in already. So we, I get in the car and Fergie, I said, Fergie, what are you doing picking me up? He says, we're going for lunch. We're going for supper. He said, I got to talk to you about something. I says, wow. I says, you got to talk to me. I says, about what? He says, I got to talk to you about something. So I says, okay, well, you can talk. So we get in, we get a lunch at supper and nice steak place and I says Fergie I says I, I never had that happen in my, even in Quebec when I went to Quebec I never got treated like that he says uh, I want the numbers I says what are you talking about I says uh, I found out to through somebody that you have all the numbers on the pension plan the players the money that's been stolen from the league, from the players in the league. I says, what are you talking about, Fergie? He says, Danny, 
He says, Tim Ecclestone told me you had the numbers. I says, yeah. And well, I says, I'm still playing. I'm not going to, I'm not going to screw around with that and this and that, you know? And so he says, well, listen, he says, uh, when do you want to talk about it? I says, you know what, towards the end of the season, let's talk about it. I says, first, what do you want me here for? He said, I want to make the playoffs. I said, okay, we'll make the playoffs. So we ended up playing the game, and then we had a, a guy, Barry Lawn, that was our coach, and Rick Bonus, and Barry Lawn wanted to get fired, and he didn't want to lose his contract, his two-year contract. And so Rick Bonus calls me, and he says, you know, Barry, Barry says you're not going to play for the rest of the season. I said, hey, look, I'll go, I'll go and cash my check every two weeks. And I says, that's the end of my career. It's the end of my career. So that, so I says, I don't know why you're telling me that. It's none of my business. So we're five or six points out of the playoffs, and there's 10 games left. And Fergie comes to me one morning in practice, and he says, uh, how's your ankle? He says, nothing wrong with my ankle. He says, what is this? He says, the trainer and Barry told me that you had a bad injury in your ankle. I said, I don't have an ankle. How can you skate for an hour and a half and have a bad ankle, Fergie? I says, that's not true. I says, Bones told me I'm not going to play. So I says, because... Uh, no, says looks like Barry's trying to get fired. But I said I don't blame the guy. If he he resigned, he doesn't get his contract. He goes, oh here we go. So the next day we found out that he no Fergie fired the Barry Lawn and it's ten game less. Fergie comes to me and he says, look, we gotta make the playoffs. We make the playoffs. He says. Uh, I won't buy your last year of your contract. I says, I says, Fergie, you cannot buy the last year of my contract. I says, I got six year and then one year option and it's all guaranteed. I says, it's all signed by all the players in the league. I says, there was a collusion when I got signed a new contract. I says, the same guy that got the collusion against the NHL is the same guy that got the first collusion against Major League Baseball. It's Capstein. He says, what are you talking about? I says, Fergie, you can't see my contract even you're a GM in Winnipeg. Shane Crow won't show it to you. Looks at me, he says, no way, no way. So he comes back the next day and he says, I can't see your contract. They told me it's nobody sees that contract. I says, I told you, Fergie. He says, what did you do? Well, I says, I was a free agent and they got all the owners to sign to guarantee the contract. He says, "Really? All oh, right." He says, "You're in the lot. Of, you're in. You're on the blacklist. You know, I, I've been on the blacklist since uh, my first year. I signed with Eagleson. <laughs> so I said, "To long. That's the rest of the story, Fergie." He says, "You had Eagleson. This is my first year. Yeah." And I says, "He tried to screw me, and I said, to your contract." And he says, "You did that to Eagles." He says, "Yes." Ah, oh, no wonder he, no wonder he hates you with a passion. I says, yeah, that's okay. So he says we ended up playing seven game in the row. After the seven game, we were in Washington. We went to seven seven game in the row. We we're guaranteed to make the playoffs. 
we go in L.A. and Quebec. Quebec, that night that we arrive in L.A., we're going to play two nights later. Quebec is playing L.A., and Quebec won their first championship. I was in the same building as Quebec was when they won the first championship. And indirectly, that made L.A. completely out of the playoffs, so we were we were sure in. So I'm at the game, and Fergie's at the game, and I'm at the in the press box, and Fergie comes over to me and he says, "Okay, now let's go and let's go and eat. Let's go in the forum club." So we, I go in the forum club, and there's a guy called Peter Falk. I don't know if you remember him, Colombo. Oh my God, sure. Peter Falk come over and he says, "Hey, Danny, how you doing? You know, he says, uh, I hope you didn't forget me, you know, and all that." And Fergie smoked cigar all the time, so I asked for hey, Fergie. And you want to talk about the numbers? And I says, yeah, come here. For he had two big cigars, two Cuban cigars in his pocket. I says, here, thank you. Here, Peter, you like the Cuban cigar? I says, here, John Ferguson's giving you one Cuban cigar. He says, hey, Danny, Danny. So I says, thank you, John. Thank you. So I says, okay, let's stop business. So he says, Carl Brewer wants those numbers. And Colleen Gorial wants the numbers. He says, you know, Rockets only. I says, I, I know all that. <clears throat> but I says, he says, look, I won't buy your contract. I says, you can't buy it. I told you. He says, that's, I don't want to talk about it. He says, okay, we make the playoffs. I won't buy your contract. You're going to get paid the remaining years over six years. And he says, that's okay. That's fine. With me. But he says, I want that stuff. Next year, we're playing Relive the Dream, you know, the 1972 series against the Russian. He says, we're going to replay that. We're going to play one game in Ottawa, one game in Hamilton, one game in, uh, not Calgary, but Saskatoon. And he says, uh, one more game in uh, Sudbury. And he says, I'm sorry, in Ottawa again. He says, you're going to play all the games. So I says, okay, but he says, the first night in Ottawa, you're going to meet Carl Brewer and you're going to meet Colleen now and Gordy Al. Walk in the room at the Chateau Laurier in Ottawa and Gordy Al was in the room, Colleen now was there, Carl Brewer was there. Me and Fergie would walk in the room. So Carl Brewer says, so you're the numbers man. He says, of all things, a goalie. So I said, yeah, I'm the numbers man. So I show him everything and I explain everything. Look, it's very self-explanatory. Look, it works like this, like this. And you see, I got the actuaries putting all the numbers and what it is year per year, the increments and the, you know, the compose interest and everything. So I says, it's very, it's, I says, numbers never, never lie. So they look at it and so he says, how much how much money? I says, well, we should be around $168 million a day or us. But I says, it's going to be a fight because a lot of the money is the money that they stolen from the Canadian social uh, medical system. The U.S. owner was making money with the U.S. medical system. So I says, that's and that the other animal that's going to Lincoln the litigation, but I says, look, minimum you should get 
easy, 160 million. In 1991, we settled for 144 million because Carl Brewer was dying of cancer. And but that night when I we, I opened the door to get out of the Chateau Laurier to go back to go and eat with the rest of the players, guess who was at the door waiting for me? <laughs> Alan Nielsen, Tom Cannon, and his other buddy. And they all look at me and they says, we're going to get you thrown in jail for defamation. And I look at them and I says, Mike Cannon, and I told the other guy, I says, if I was you, I'd get out of town real quick. Because I says, Alan Nicholson's going to wear a striped pajama. You're going to wear striped pajama. Those numbers that I gave them, they don't lie. It's printed in stone. Numbers always printed in stone. You guys are going to jail. The other guy was Sam Simpson. And they all look at me and they they say, so Eagleson says, I'm going to have you. You're going to be in jail no time, Bouchard. No, I says, look, Eagle, you crossed me my first year. I says, it's funny how the the roads cross again. But I says, I'm the top one on the cross. And the rest is history, you know, he ended up going to jail for it and all that. But nobody but John Ferguson knew about the numbers and Eagleson. Once those numbers came out, nobody knew that I had, I had the numbers. And when we had Boom Boom Jeffrey Hunt's funeral here in Atlanta, I went, I was the ambassador to take John Bellavo out, you know, for the dinner the night before the funeral because he represented the Montreal Canadian and he put some champagne on the table and he says, Danny, the boys in Montreal found out from uh, John Ferguson's son that you were the numbers guy and that thing. Nobody knew who got the number to Carl Brewers and Carl Brewers never told anybody. That was the deal. I says, yeah, that was the deal. So, and then John Delavo asked him, why did you do it? I says, my dad told me, if you know something is wrong and you do nothing about it, you're even, you're more wrong than they are. You're a worse person than they are. And I says, I had to do the right thing. Mind you, I, you know, I'm, I'll never get a vote for the Hall of Fame, you know, even though I hit 625 in my career, but it's not important. I did the right thing. That's an amazing and dramatic story. This, how much of this has come out, Dan? I mean, it's not important. I told you that. You know, I understand. Some people are. Some people going to hear it. They're going to hurt. You know, but a lot of the guys only found out afterwards. You know, like when Boom Boom got his check and all that, and you know, when John Bellavo told me, he says. When the boys from the Canadian brought the checks over, he says he thought it was a joke. He says, for us, you know, he says, he says, Henry Richard and all that, he says, to get those, you know, $420,000, you know, $398,000 check, it was like winning the lottery. They were getting only about nine, $10,000 a year. He says, it was, you know, it was a windfall that they never thought. And he says, we couldn't believe it. You know, we were grinning like, you know, we, we looked like the cat that swallowed the canary, you know, but the whole idea was 
I says, was it fun to get the check to go and sign it? He says, yes. He says, the only thing that was not fun, he says, pay the tax on it. <laughs> Small price to pay, maybe. Um, all well, right, so, yeah. it's better than nothing. Right, know. you got it. Well, it's, so you, it, the good news is you're paying tax on something that you, you, you've, you've inherited or-, or, or you, you, found, you found money. Right. All right. So let me let me ask you. Let me wrap up with that question. Then and one last one, and because this has been very very intriguing, and and I, I appreciate your your giving us all this time and the story. So, what in all of this, right? So you know, you, you're obviously keeping a lot of this close to your vest. You're you're very savvy, I guess, in terms of trying to recognize your career path and architecture, and but knowing deep inside what you you know ultimately kind of need to do and sort of bring to light. Mm-hmm. Were you able to determine what the original motivation or circumstances was of the NHL's, I don't know, shenanigans when it came to this pension scenario? Like, why in the first place was all of this done? Well, was it, it's you know- just to show you that when there's a, a conflict of interest, you know, because Mike Milbury at one time made a lot of noise about Alan Eagleson should not be the in no the players uh NHLPA president and represent some players and be an agent for some of the players because it was too much of a conflict. And also, you know, Alan Eagleson, you know, when he went to Florida, he went to the Bahamas, he was on no, he was on somebody's yacht, he was on uh Sonny Warbling uh presidential suite in Florida. Florida, he was uh, on the Wirtz yacht in Miami. He was, you know, there was too many conflicts of interest. And I knew that they were stealing money because one year, you know, uh, I got something done. I had some teeth done, fixed. And uh, I got a $1,000 check for my teeth and it was only $192. In 1980, that's when things were cheaper. And I sent the check back to the NHL and kept sending the check back. And I says, hey, that belongs to the NHLPA, the the Player Association. I said, that goes to the pension plan. I says, I'm not going to steal from my player. And Eagleson and Sam Simpson told me, you're stupid ass, you keep the money. Everybody does it. So when there's wrongdoing, why steal from the older player that was not getting it? That's when, that's what put the bug in my ear. I said, there's something wrong there. Then it revealed itself. So that's why I did it, really. Well, justice has been served, no doubt. I, it's, but it's also, look, it also speaks to, you know, a lot of the other issues that we've sort of talked about in, on this show, which is you know, management versus labor. Right. The realities of what the quote unquote business is. Right. They're all, all even more acute now. Right. How many times has the okay. NHL had pl- player stoppages and, and work stoppages? I mean, to the point of shutting down entire seasons. I mean, probably, you know, it's probably the most dramatic over the last 20 years is the NHL. Right. And probably again, in yeah. a couple of years. Right. Yeah. So that I mean, you know, in many respects, this is, um, you know, doing the right thing is uh, not always the. And you got, you know, and you got you remember. The last, uh, the last shutdown lasts fairly long, and the guy that was in charge of it, the, for the player association and HLPA, mm-hmm. well, he did, he did a great, great job because he was also making sure that there would be, you know, the right gratuity paid to all the players 
even though the, the new players are making so much money, the guy that paid the, the stuff for them can get a little bonus every year. And he did, he did that. So you see, there was a wrong, you know, everybody looked at, oh, well, this shouldn't have been a strike, this should have been a strike. But some of the the players that were playing, making all the money, says, well, a lot of the older guys don't get anything anymore. Because a lot of players, at one time, the NHLPA says, you can take your pension, or the NHL pensions, you can take your pension. And that was mostly in Canada. And the guys could bring it to a broker, and they can do RRA. And then three years later, the Canadian government called back all the RRAs, and all the guys lost their money. Nobody talks about that. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've uh, yeah, and I, this is, it's also uh, a sign of, I guess, the times that, you know, we're talking about, right? I, like the ABA, for example, right? Obviously a league that sort of came and went after about, about nine seasons or so. And we've had some interesting conversations with some of the old players there where they're, they're, they're seeking restitution of some of, call it pension, call it, I don't know, war pay or whatever. But when the NBA uh, uh, absorbed the ABA, right, there's, there is a, a implicit or in some cases even legally explicit understanding that there would be an accommodation of the players from the ABA that came along as part of it that they would get, if not made whole, but certainly, you know, uh, benefits and or uh, health uh, insurance and those kinds of things. And and they're still fighting that today to this day. So Oh, yeah. And you know what? If those guys know all they have to do is join the NFL alumni. I joined the NFL alumni, even though my team was defunct and all that. The fact that I, I paid into a pension plan, into a professional league that's still in the United States, I joined the NHL, the NFL alumni, and I can get some of the benefits there. A lot of those guys are not instructed about that. Well, so that's uh, maybe that's sort of a, a way to sort of corral uh, the rest of our, our conversation, because I think this, you know, this is this is certainly an issue. That even you know even in today's modern NFL and, and 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 pro sports, as the money has gotten even more obscene, and the the values of franchises and, and the billionaires now in order to own a franchise or, or whatever, right? It's it's even gotten to a, a gargantuan level, right? This is even more important. And, pro, and look, gambling is going to be even in less than three years. Going to be in forty states legalized gambling. How much money is that going to bring to? To the sports, but it's also it also calls out how players and I. It seems to me that that a number of leagues and certainly a number of professionals have recognized that education, right? You, you know, you're a numbers. You know the numbers guy, right? So, but not everybody who's a star player in any sport, in college and in pros, are are come from maybe a backgrounds that aren't sort of financially savvy or, or a financial finances of any sort, right? They're just not prepared for not only the today of what to do with that windfall and how to manage your money, but but more importantly, what what about tomorrow? Because the career ends at some point, right? It never can doesn't go on forever, right? It never does. And the whole idea the whole idea of it, you know what? Uh, even though a lot of people well oh Imagine one that one day a guy was talking to me because I was with Patrick Watt. Patrick Watt was telling me that one morning he gave ten million dollars to his wife and says so long lining, you know? And he still had thirty five million dollars left. You get me? He bought out of his divorce. He bought his divorce and this and that. He was telling me that. And you look at that kind of money and you know, 
Guy Lafleur and myself and all those guys, we never made uh, $3 million, you see, in our career. You know, and they they wonder, well, what do you have today? You know, and, well, hey, well, I live like this. I can't complain. And that's the whole idea, but it's just the way... You know, the time to come in is the time to come in. You got to do the best with what you got. All right, let me ask this one last question. And this has been been great. And I appreciate all of this, and I look forward to getting this out there for our audience. So let me give me a sense then from your perspective, right? And I think it's very it's very unique your perspective, given the time you were in the league, the teams that you were part of, as well as the the bigger story that you were involved in, and, and frankly still are, arguably. What is the current state of the NHL? I mean, you're looking at, you know, a Seattle team coming in at 600,000, excuse me, 600,000, really, $600 million as an expansion fee. You've got a number of cities that are still eager, perhaps, to, to take some of the Phoenixes or the Floridas if they're, if they're willing. Like, I know the folks in Kansas City wouldn't mind. I know Quebec wouldn't mind. Uh, nobody saw, I don't think, the success of Las Vegas so quickly. But But what do you think of the NHL and its current and or future trajectory? Are you are you excited about it? Are you worried about it? Has it gotten too big, too fast? What do you think? Well, look, the way they got the salary cap, what, $139 million now, something like that? The salary cap? What's the salary cap in the in, in, I, in yeah, yeah, it sounds about right, but I, I don't have the specs in front of me. Yeah, yeah, anyway, just something like that. You know, if they have it, they have... The TV rights they're having, look, they must be making money or they wouldn't stay in it. And you look at the Vegas team. Look, the Vegas team. The Vegas team came in the first year and they proved one thing. If you have the best scouting, you know how to scout, you've got a good coach, and you have, you know, naturally had good good sport ethics. You know, repetition is, you know, success is repetition. There's a lot of team doing a lot of teams doing really really well, okay. And you look, I think the the state of the NHL is, you know, indirectly, in Canada the teams are all solid. In you guys in in the United States, I think there's about sixteen that could collapse. If there would be a bad economic crisis, those teams would collapse tomorrow morning. In Canada, they would survive because of their TV rights and their structures and everything. But the Canadian teams are never going to keep their good players because of taxes. That will always be the same. The good players that make a lot of money, they're always going to end up going south. And until this that structure is taken care of, that hurdle is taken care of, well, I think, you know, Right now, the economy, wow, our economy is fabulous. Look at the interest rates, 3.6% mortgage rate. I mean, when I started, it was 15% mortgage rate. So you look at that, and it's, it's only as good as your economy. A league is only as good as the economy. I, I think you've actually stumbled onto something even bi- – so I, I, I tend to very much agree with you, right? We, we are – uh, cyclically overdue, right? I would take politics out of it uh, for it's just economic cycles that uh, that you know we're we're overdue for some kind of 
shall we say, course correction or, or just general pause, I guess, in a, in a mm-hmm. and, and, and we'll see how and when that shakes out and, you know, whatever. But I, I don't think you're off base uh, at all, not only with regard to the NHL, but but just about every major sports league. Look at major every, soccer, every, for example, right? Every major sport, because look, what happens if the Democrats come in and they want to go socialize? What's going to happen? The worst happen. The worst thing that happens to socialized country is corruption. How can that destroy sports overnight? That's what. You know, when I look at all those people making comments about socialism, socialism tax this, tax that, tax that. You know what? That's going to overnight. That could change everything because all of a sudden, when the government tell you how you're going to live, even your pro athletes. A lot of stuff's going to go out the window. Well, even even if it's not policy, it's also just it's 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 discretionary income, right? When people have less discretionary income, right? And look at look at the average ticket prices, look at the suites, look at the VIP, look at the the the, the subscription. Well, look, television. Hey, look, lots of revenue uh, streams. What, right? what does the cost to go to an NHL game? It's crazy. When the you know when the trashers were here, they had the tickets one hundred ten dollars. You know, for in the on the one side of the building, okay. $110. And the team that Atlanta put on the ice was fair to ordinary. Okay. And the whole idea, well, that's the way they, they say they can still make money because the building makes money. But what happens if the economy is bad? Okay. You look, you look at the whole spectrum. You look at sports. You even look at the, uh, you know, entertainer. They, Everybody's going to take a hit. That's the you no know, people don't look at it, but the things that makes the table turn every day is your economy. And if it collapsed, what happened in 1929 when it collapsed? What happened to sports? You know, it's no different. All right, my last question: Where's your book? When are you going to put a book out? When are you going to write stuff? Oh, I, I've never, I, I, I've never put a book out. Really. I've never. It sounds me, like you've got some stories, and and then some. you know I got I got I, you know I got some of the best funny stories. What happens with within the players and all like traveling and all that. I got the some of the but that's you know I'm not that pretentious. You know, look, I had a great career. The Lord blessed me in many ways. I can't complain. I live great retirement. I can play golf every day. I enjoy my my family, and I enjoy the the life. You know, I had a great great life, but I was paid to play. You know, so and after my career, even though I had brain surgery and all, I was able. I work in rehab with all the concussion player and all that, and that's that's my fun part. I give back, but I'm not going. I'm not that pretentious. I think. People that write books, uh, I find that pretentious, especially if you're an athlete. Because too many people, like I was a goalie, and all those five guys in front of me always been part of my success and my joy of playing. So I don't think I'm better than they are. And I I had many, many, I had about seven people last week, four guys in Canada, two guys in the United States. I don't think I write a book, but my stories are very, 
very to me. And if some people listen to your show, a lot of them will never know, they'll never heard that before. All right, our thanks to Dan. Uh, a, a very intriguing and revealing conversation, and one I was uh, frankly not expecting, but I enjoyed it thoroughly. I learned a lot, and uh, I suspect this will not be the last word on uh, this story, the pensions issue, uh, the Flames' relocation to Calgary, uh, but frankly, just generally, uh, our, also our first exploration, and not only to the Flames, but also the uh, Quebec Nordiques, uh, and the uh, first uh, uh, iteration of the Winnipeg Jets. Uh, I'm sure more stories to be had around all three of those teams. And um, we invite you to continue to listen. And uh, obviously, if you've got uh, memories or direct connections to some of those memories, by all means, reach out uh, and let's talk about it. Let's uh, perhaps get those on uh, future episodes and we'll be more than happy to go uh, deeper uh, and uh, and luxuriate, frankly, in some of those uh into some of those memories and some of those stories. We certainly will uh, enjoy hearing from you. And you can always send us an email uh, just to say hello or let us know about what you're interested in or perhaps uh, a guest suggestion or two or whatever. Uh, maybe you'd like to be on the show and you've got a good reason to do so. By all means, give us an email. Why not? At hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com, of course. That's how you can send an email to us directly and you'll get to us. If you forget that address, you can just go over to our website, which is the convenient you know, categorization of all things this show, and that's goodseatsstillavailable.com. That's where you're going to find all of our old episodes. You can download them, you can share them, you can do whatever you want with them. Lots of great imagery there. We've got a lot of uh, commerce links uh, to great shirts and uh, media and books and all those kinds of things that we feature on this show. Uh, you'll find our social media links there too. At Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. On Good Seats, uh, excuse me, but on, on Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Yes, that's a little longer there on that site. And we also have a Facebook page devoted to us as well. You can follow us uh, and chime in there if you wish uh, there, too. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, our thanks, of course, uh, to the great Dr. Jerry Payne and all of his efforts putting our pieces together. And we want to especially uh, tip our uh, our hat to Jerry this week, uh, for it is he that uh, got us connected to Dan Bouchard down in Atlanta. A, uh, a good piece of evidence of if uh, you've got uh, an idea or a connection, we're, we're more than happy to hear about it. And uh, we thank Jerry this week for helping us do that. Uh, and uh, it's been a while since uh, we didn't be able to sort of get it on the air, but uh, we have uh, greatly appreciated his uh, suggestion and getting uh, this interview with the great Dan Bouchard with you, to you. Uh, finally. All right. We're done for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, I appreciate it to no end and uh, keep those uh, proverbial cards and letters coming. Until next week, we'll see you.